Welcome to Omla's Visionary Wellbeing Podcast for individuals and businesses to thrive. And in this podcast, I'm speaking to interesting people who are business leaders or experts within the field of health and well-being. I'm so happy that you've decided to listen in to this episode and I hope it will bring you some inspiration and clarity how you can go about your day to boost your health and well-being, to increase your um, happiness at work and outside of work as I do believe we all strive to live life to our highest potential and that we just need a little bit of a reminder or good examples of how to make it happen in our own lives. So with that said, warm welcome and I hope you will enjoy this episode. Welcome to this episode. As you might know, I'm fascinated about neuroscience, which is the science of how the brain works. And that has led me to train both mindfulness and meditation. And I often get questions about mindfulness and how to start doing a practice and what the benefits are. And I really wanted to share that experience with you and share more about the knowledge and the science of mindfulness. And I've been looking for someone to interview for this topic. And that's the guest for today. His name is Jonathan Reynolds. And he's the founder and CEO of Mindful Life, Mindful Work, Inc. And that's a San Francisco-based leadership development company providing services that address the intersection of self-awareness and team performance. So I thought he would be just perfect to bring on to this show so we can learn from him. Because he's been working with this since 1997 and he's been training both himself in the discipline of mindfulness, but he's also been working very closely with leaders and teams to see how they can use simple and practical ways to improve team culture, performance, and efficiency by using a more mindful approach. So I'm so happy and honored to have Jonathan as a guest in this show. Jonathan, warmly welcome. It's a pleasure to be here, Miriam. Thank you for having me. So with so much uh, experience and you've been in the field or the business of mindfulness for many years, can you just show share a little bit about your background and how you became interested in mindfulness in the first place? Sure. Thank you for the question. Um, I, I became interested in mindfulness in the 90s because of my own personal suffering. Uh, I was having a difficult time in my life. And so I was looking for a more skillful way to live as myself. And so found mindfulness and things like meditation and things like yoga practices in the 90s. Uh, and then very immediately felt some of the benefits. So wanted to share that and wanted to be helpful and useful and started to share that in informal ways in those early days things like relationship coaching or even practice or meditation or even spiritual coaching, um, whatever somebody needed, I just wanted to be useful. And so over the years that codified and transitioned, I trained to be a therapist. And at some point 
it became self-evident that others were doing complementary work and I wanted to scale the influence and the conversations. And so started to gather uh, professionals that were doing similar things um, and were aligned ideologically. And then Mindful Life, Mindful Work, my company, uh, formed organically sort of out of those relationships. Oh, that's, it's really interesting. And, and thanks for sharing also that you're, sort of the path to mindfulness started in a place of actually suffering or feeling um, not <laughs> as your best probably. And I think we share that experience that mindfulness can really support us when we feel uh, that we long for something else or that we would need um, to, um, yeah, we just need to a bit of relief actually. But can you sort of demystify what is it with mindfulness that enables us to actually improve our well-being? Well, I think ultimately at the core, it's a self-awareness practice. And I think when we're more aware of our own self and what we want and what we need and the ways and the more skillful ways of getting it, in some ways, I don't love the word excellence these days because it's not about sort of peak, um, but if things can get worse for us, that means they can also get better. So change is good news, even though it's difficult for lots of folks. But if things couldn't change, it wouldn't be adjustable. It wouldn't be malleable. And so our experience is we can modify it. We can modify the way that we go through the world, not just by changing external conditions, but by changing and addressing the operating system and how we address things. When we get mad that something has changed, it's not the fault of the thing that changed, things change. Mm -hmm. So it's how we relate to the things that change. And once I recognized that I could adjust my operating system or the way that I experience my experiences, mm -hmm. then, uh, then there was a lot of freedom in that. There was a lot of empowerment um, because it wasn't about these things happening to me. Causes aren't external and then effects internal. Once we recognize that we have some say in how we move through the world, we can begin causes internally, and then the effects are external. And so we flip it on its head uh, in a way that's really useful and empowering. Yeah, yeah. I also see mindfulness as this amazing tool to actually be more sort of grounded and, and be more okay. Whatever change will come, because I think we all know, living through the last couple of years, that change is so um it can be so profound and can come in such a high pace and we don't know what it is right we we couldn't imagine the last couple of years and i think we don't know what's going to come in the future either so the only thing we really can change in that aspect is our uh, reaction to that change right mm -hmm. yeah exactly i mean exactly it's that capacity um, to pause and to not be reactive and to actually choose what our response will be. And uh, mindfulness is that capacity to feel both more pleasure and enjoyment, but more difficulty in a way that's non-reactive so we can take stock before we engage. Um, and then when we do engage, we make a more informed choice based on what we want. It's that space in between you know, we've all heard the space between mm, um, action yeah. and reaction, right? That gap. Yeah. And and that and even if that gap is just an extra millisecond, that's that's all it takes. Mm. And so mindfulness helps us build that capacity. 
it makes the whole difference having that the tiny gap and mm. how do you actually then practice mindfulness how would you describe it to someone who's never tried mm. well i think ultimately i mean there's lots of ways to practice mindfulness there's very sort of standard or formal ways like seated meditation uh, i think people can practice in various other ways as well um you know, being in nature or creating art. I, I I like a very simple practice. So I like the seated meditation practice because it lets me um, sort of peel away all that is extra and really see my own processes and the way that my mind works and the habits that are there. And mm. so observing, I mean, ultimately, if we want to learn about the mind, we have to observe it and not some other mind like a scientist studying an external thing. But actually, we have the insider experience on our own mind and experience. And if we're not paying attention to it, no one is, because we're the only one who can observe our own mind. And so once we do that, then uh, then we start to see, oh, I am reactive. I do always push away these sorts of experience or pull these sorts of experiences closer. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. That's human nature. Um, but if we do it habitually and not of our own liking, then uh, it's nice to notice those things. And an awareness, I like to say, is self-liberating. Once we see a pattern that is harming us, um, even if subtly, even if very subtly, then we can re-choose. Um, doesn't mean it's easy. It's very challenging. Yeah. Um, but it can happen also relatively quickly. Because that's something from... I think what you're saying is so interesting that the mindfulness practice is really like looking at your thoughts, like becoming aware of them. Uh, many times I hear someone say that, oh, I can't meditate because my mind is so busy or it doesn't shut up. <laughs> but I'm uh, what I'm saying then is like, it's not supposed to be quiet. It's like the mindfulness practice is actually to listen to what's going on. And even though you shouldn't get entangled in in it, but it gives you a sense of awareness what's actually happening within your mind. Mm. But how come that sometimes we are so harsh and the things in our mind can be so negative? Well, I think that one is conditioning. We're sort of trained to be on guard, to be defensive. To, be, to keep things at bay that might be threatening, whether that's an evolutionary thing and we were like protecting against a big animal eating us and we got to be on guard. And we've all maybe heard some of those stories. It's better to be on guard in case there's a big animal. Mm. Um, so we were always on guard, even though 99.9% .9 of the time there wasn't a big animal. We still had to be ready because if we weren't ready that one time, we got eaten. And yeah. so some of it's evolutionary around those sorts of things. Um, some of it's, you know, sort of the science of entropy. Things degenerate if we don't add positive to a, to an energetic system. If we studied chemistry or physics, if you don't add something positive to a system, it degrades over time. Just think about a house. If you leave a house alone, eventually, even though nothing bad happens to the house, it gets dusty, the windows break the boards start to fall apart. You have to add energy to make it a home, to paint it regularly, to clean it up, to sweep. Mm, to look after it. Yeah. yeah, and so the same thing with the mind. If we leave it to its own devices, it just gets dusty and broken. Uh -huh. and so we need to sweep it. We need to uh, put a new coat of paint on it, and we need to observe it 
And back to your other point, ultimately you can't stop the thoughts of the mind. I think that any meditation program that sort of says you're going to stop the thoughts of your mind is sort of a, a false advertisement. Yeah. Um, it's uh, That's not the goal. The goal is to relate to the thoughts in a different way, even if they're negative thoughts, to see them mm -hmm. and like, oh, those are negative thoughts. Thanks yeah. for stopping by. I don't have to believe <laughs> you. I don't have to battle with you. Um, because of the nature of change, they're going to move on on their own. You don't have to push negative thoughts away. Just observe them for what they are. Yeah, I, and I hope that, that can be a relief for you who are like listening in that you, if you feel like, oh, but I'm not good, which doesn't exist, by the way, you can't be good or bad at meditation. It's just, you can just do it. And then it changes every day and you can just be, I would encourage you to be like curious about your um, thoughts. And then also, as you say, like have the distance to see them as thoughts and not as truth. I think mm. for me, that was a huge revelation when like, just because I think something <laughs> about myself or about something else, it's not the truth. Like, mm -hmm. Well, there's a bumper sticker maybe you've heard of going around in the United States is don't believe everything you think. Uh -huh. And uh, it's exactly that, right? Like just because you thought it doesn't mean it's true. Right. And, uh, and uh, good stuff and bad stuff and all the stuff, like it's just a thought and uh, it can be used for transformation and creativity, but it's just a thought. And that actually brings me to a little bit more of an overarching. There, there, there are disciplines in the world, for instance, that teach that suffering exists and is a natural human quality. Yeah, like the Buddhism teaching. Yeah, yeah, there's really two ways. There's really two ways to receive that information. There's the people that think, oh, that's terrible news. I don't want to believe that or be a part of that. There's those people. And then there's also another very common response, which is that's absolutely wonderful news because that means I'm not doing my life wrong. If life is inherently challenging sometimes, it, I mean, we sort of get in Western cultures, like if you're happy and you're a millionaire and you like made it big, you mm -hmm. lived life right. And if you didn't do that, you're doing something very, very wrong. And that's just not true. Um, there's all sorts of circumstances that contribute to that sort of, you know, fiscal success. Often it's luck and timing. Often it has nothing to do with anything more skillful. And so... I think it's really important to contextualize that change happens and when we relate to it differently through practices that have mindfulness or some mindful way about them, that uh, that it just changes, it changes the whole game for the better. It makes it makes life so much easier because we're less hard on ourselves for the reasons you mentioned. Mm. Yes. No, I think there's the topic of suffering um is really interesting and how can we allow ourselves to have all the experiences, um, like to feel all emotions mm -hmm. uh, in a way? Because I think it's part of life, as you said. We will, everyone, as human beings, we will go through changes, we will go through challenges, and that will cause us to have these experiences. But it's somehow I wish still that people could be... Mm, I don't know, just feeling that it's not to be too harsh on themselves or maybe mm. to be too disappointed or let those negative experiences really drag people 
down mm. how how can the practice of um mindfulness help a person that feels like a little bit locked in the negative change mm-hmm. well there are roughly there's two segments of practices um there's concentration practices which support the individual more in the way that maybe you're mentioning and then there's inquiry or insight practices that destabilize things a little bit in the name of growth mm-hmm. and they sort of like pull apart things to see them in new ways and so depending on where a person is they want might want more concentration practices uh and more support practices to recognize uh that there's sort of an underlying possibility of contentment rather than dis-ease and uh and so it, it it all depends on how somebody practices it i think it's why it's helpful to have somebody who has a little more experience than us or a community to practice with because that helps balance things out along the way yeah yes and that leads me into my next next question uh, very nicely because what's your approach to mindfulness training and especially when it comes into like a more corporate setting how would you go about doing that well traditionally mindful life mindful work hasn't trained companies in mindfulness proper so in mindfulness as just sort of a technique we've done very little of that we've focused more on application of mindful sensibilities we make a distinction between the words mindful and mindfulness mindful can mean lots of different things to different folks and so in that application uh so for instance i'll just use coaching a senior leader as an example uh often it's about bringing them into their own awareness in a new way and a lot of that can be body based directed So for instance, they have a difficult team member or they're having trouble managing their team and it's a small team of direct reports. Uh, You know, checking in with themselves and feeling what feels off and then also making it relational. So both relating to self in a sense of what does it actually feel like? How do you know something's off? Because they can say, oh, I understand it in my mind. But that usually has some connection to some feeling in the body that gives you the cue that you want to think about it. And so bringing them into attention in that way. And then also the relational piece. Often with leaders, they're taught that they have to have all the answers. And so there's a reason you have a team because your team has ideas too. Mm. And so ask the team, um, ask individual members how they would address a given thing. You don't have to have all the answers. And uh, and so some of that, like we've tried to integrate mindful life, mindful work has tried to integrate um, more practices and ways of doing these things, whether a person has a formal mindfulness practice or not. Uh, I think ultimately we're all self-aware to the degree that we are. And so we choose very often to use that doorway um, for mindfulness yeah. training. It can show up at the beginnings and ends of meetings. It can be a formal, you know, there's places like Salesforce that I think have like a meditation room on each floor, I've heard. So there's mm-hmm. there's there's ways to sort of build it into the culture in really um, designed and sort of structured ways. But ultimately, if you're going to shift a culture, it should be in every moment. It shouldn't be, I mean, it shouldn't be church on Sundays and then the rest of the week do whatever you want. It should be, no, this is an every time thing. This is an always thing. Um, 
And nobody practices perfect, but it should be an all-the-time intentional thing. Yeah, so then it shifts from what I, if I understand correct, from being something considered a training to instead being like an approach, like being more how we uh, react to each other or how we um, try to become more aware, uh, maybe especially as leader, is a very is a key quality to become um, more confident in your leadership skills, to be able to become more self-aware about your how you react in different situations, to be able to also support your team members, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And and so a lot of my work with senior leaders is around their leadership style. Mm. Like, what's your style? And some leaders say, I don't know. I was, you know, it just sort of happened that I'm this sort of person as a leader. And well, what kind of leader do you want to be? Have you ever thought about that? And like, do you want to be relational? Do you want to be collaborative? Do you want to be authoritarian? Like, how do you want to be as a leader? And then again, setting intention is really essential because we're always going to make mistakes. Mm. Um, but when we have an intention, we have the integrity co to come back to the intention. If you don't have an intention, then how do you even judge if something's a mistake or not? There's nothing to come back to that says that was that was a good practice of the intention or not. And so that's where like a higher level strategy comes in for how leaders and or companies. Yeah, I mean, the same is true in culture and companies. Companies say, well, our culture is broken. Well, what did you do to design it? We didn't. It just arose. We we didn't know it was something we should have designed. Well, the more effort you put in, the less entropy you get. Yeah. Uh, and the more you get to actually have a say and some autonomy in the creative process. Because I think many companies think a lot about uh, other more typical things like target settings and so on. Maybe what are our KPIs and all, spending time focusing on the dashboard and the output. But then how how does the intention piece come in into the culture and how can you work uh, strategically to understand how we as a company can set, um, can we have an intention as a company and how do you align it to your leadership intentions? How would you go about that? We offer a, uh, we offer a small group session and ideally it's the top, the C-suite, um, but at, it's sometimes in a larger, a very large company, it'll just be a small department or it'll be a subset. Um, we call this process a company charter. And it's it relates to the business, but it's more about feeling. It's like, how do we want to feel when we're together? Right. Who are we going to be as people together? And what are we going to do to make sure that we feel that way? Mm. And on really crappy days when we're nobody's feeling that way, what are we going to agree to do to try to bring us back to feeling that way? And it's really essential to have those conversations ahead of time. Because if you don't, and you're having a crappy day as a company, yeah. then nobody feels like they can do the thing that would help correct it because it would be out of place because there was no pre-agreement or they'd seem like a jerk to bring it up. And uh, and so having this overarching intention really changes the game. And again, ideally, it's the top and then it's in all the messaging. messaging. It's not just a poster on the wall that says, we care about being good people. No. Like, it that's needs... really that's nice, but nobody ever looks at it. And if you don't practice it in everything you do, 
everybody starts to disbelieve it, resent that it's even there, and then leaves the company because they know it's not true. And, uh, and so the important thing is, is not to be perfect, but to practice. The word practice has been the through line of my own personal life and professional life is there's something beautiful in ongoing development um, and acceptance for what it is in any given moment. It's both perfect right now and it's got a lot of room for improvement. That's a quote from a, a meditation teacher, Shunru Suzuki. Um, it's perfect and it's got a lot of room for improvement. Yes, yes. Like our as individuals, I think we're all perfect and we can all <laughs> evolve as human beings. Uh, Yes, because that gives the sense of, as you said, the intention piece is more like the energy, the the vibe you would feel just being part of the culture, being part of your company. How would that feel and how would that be then demonstrated in different behaviors? And that can be the small things, right? Like how you talk to each other, how you greet each other, how you support each other in times of challenges and so on. Yeah, I mean, little things, even within Mindful Life, Mindful Work, we have a policy that when you send an email and the email gets received, that you acknowledge having received it. It seems like such a small thing, mm. but people send emails all day long in big companies and they don't know if that person ever received it. And the person who received it might be like, oh, I, I'm glad I got the information. Good. I've got what I need. But if they don't let the other person know, they have no idea that you have what you need. Yeah. And so little things like that either address um, where there would be misses in communication mm -hmm. and instead sort of like encourage this fabric of respect and feeling seen and seeing um, or they don't. And so lots of companies all of a sudden end up in this place where how did this happen? Well, if you don't build in practices that make people feel seen. If you're not acknowledging people for good work, they're gone. Yes. Like, yeah, who, yeah. Who, who the hell would stay somewhere that does good work and then they don't get any credit or somebody we... else takes the credit? Like, <laughs> Worst case. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And that is so, I think what you're describing is so spot on. And also I'm just thinking now we use, in Omla, we use Slack a lot. And in that, when we send things in different channels, and the team do like hearts or thumbs up or it's actually not something we have a policy it just happens like we acknowledge that someone said something or contributed and for me it gives a feeling of we're in this together um, and especially now with a lot of hybrid work and how we actually interact with each other has changed a lot so I think being able to have those ways of working is so crucial to keep people motivated. Yeah, I mean, otherwise people stop doing good work. If like every time I send a beautiful email, nobody acknowledges that I send it, what do you think is going to happen? That person's going to stop sending beautiful emails. And then slowly nobody's sending emails. And then mm -hmm. all of a sudden you're like, how did this happen? Well, if we don't have this warmth, there has to be warmth. Mm. Um, you know, yes, you have to be intelligent. Yes, you have to be strategic from a business case sense. But this is being strategic from a business case sense. Warmth is a good business strategy. Oh, yes. That that warms my heart that you say that. I think that's like we need corporate cultures that have warmth. Um, mm. Yeah, that that's beautiful. But how can you then, um, do you have more tips or ideas for a company that wants to create more 
awareness around the topic of mindfulness or like having more aware about the culture and maybe also an idea where they would like it to shift towards where do you start you said the leadership team but other ways or how do you It's difficult because it's on a case-by-case basis because it's going to look different in every different situation. Um, Some companies are going to need like communication help. Some are going to need messaging help. Some are going to actually have to correct some real wrongs around integrity um, and consistency of messaging internally. Um, Some are going to have to shift their public sort of persona uh, and how the public sees them. Uh, so it it really it really depends, and I think getting clear on what they want that identity to be, mm. and how again that's where that's where when we do like the company charter exercise, uh, and people are going to come up with actionable items that they're willing to do that they want to do that makes sense in their context. So we don't come in saying, oh, you guys have to do this email thing or you got to do this other thing. Um, we're there more as consultants around, oh, what do you think? Like, what's what's the problem? Oh, the problem is sales numbers are low. Okay. And salespeople are burning out. Okay. Um, what, do sales pe- what are salespeople told? Mm-hmm. Uh, how, uh, what are their expectations of themselves? What are your expectations of them? Are they realistic expectations or is it just more, 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 more? Because of course you want to sell more. But as my one of my colleagues says, uh, you know, nothing, nothing in nature grows continuously, (laughs) endlessly. That's just not true. So if you expect your sales just to go up and never dip and you get mad when they dip, you're not living in reality. Wow, there's so much. I mean, now in the time of recession, I think it's a shock for many people. And there's like so much fear and it creates fear maybe for the salesperson who's not meeting the targets. And then the sales managers are stressed out because they're not reaching their targets and so on and so on. It just escalates and everyone is so full of this stress that can create a very toxic work environment. So so yeah where do you what's your comment on that stressful to orient them to reality like uh, again i mean we've gotten in the habit especially with tech companies around speculative value and the fact that oh this thing's worth a hundred billion dollars and there's there's nothing other than the tech or you know there's there's uh, of course if something valued just crazy high like that that there, there's, uh, you know, there's reason to believe that to a certain extent, but speculation can be really toxic um, because if you don't meet that value, then um, it feels like a failure. And mm-hmm. so getting into the reality of what's on the ground um, and a salesperson making their sales calls and, you know, they're going to close two and a half to 5% if they're lucky. And, uh, and that's the reality. So if, if a company's not prepared to have a longer game and they're only looking at their quarterly numbers and that's the measure of whether they're doing well or not. Um, that's a roller coaster that is not sustainable and it's not human. Um, mm. Things ebb and flow. People have things come up in their lives. They're going to work, you know, longer hours sometimes and not have the bandwidth other times. And so if that's not held, and I think that's where we're seeing the world of work going in a more mindful and human direction mm. Because people aren't willing to give up their whole life. And I don't just mean the quality of life. I'm talking about their health, dying young, 
they're not willing to give up their life just to make someone at the top a lot of money. And, uh, and so, you know, so holding this in a new way and having real conversations, it's why I love the book, Good to Great. You know, mm. the companies that actually perform great over the long haul are where they had some balanced personality at the top that wasn't some hotshot superstar. Um, it was just a good person sort of holding things steady and directing yeah. people in a way that people wanted to perform. And so I, I think it's essential. It's like, yeah, I see the, I get this image of, you know, like a captain, even if it's stormy weathers, he's like leading or she, the, the, everyone in the team to be, you know, okay with what is. And maybe we need to slow down for a bit or we need to do other things, but we're in this together. I, I think just acknowledging that, especially in times like this, when a lot of change is happening on the outside world, impacting us as individuals, impacting us as organizations and having a negative impact, but then instead, instead of blaming individuals or um, trying to, um, I don't know, reach some unattainable target, just see what is and how can we support each other through this very rocky road. Well, and, and again, I think it comes back in part to sort of this speculative, illusory um, vision of value. I mean, just take the market, for instance. I mean, people people are on that roller coaster of up and down on the market. Fluctuations in the market mean almost nothing unless you're planning on cashing out today. Like mm -hmm. up, down, and uh, unless it went all the way to zero. That would, that, would, that would be the only real danger is if it went all the way to zero and everybody's money was gone. Mm -hmm. that, that, but the up and down, whoa, on a day-to-day -day basis... If you're not prepared to up and down, you're not prepared for reality because reality is up and down, whether it's markets, whether it's value, whether it's your emotions, um, up and down is the way of experience. Yes. And what goes up must come down. We've all <laughs> heard that. Throw, throw a rock up in the air, but don't be under it. Um, like it's coming down. And so once we recognize that the nature of reality is change, yes. then we practice to be in that change. We don't pretend that that change doesn't exist or try to, you know, do something strange with it or control it. You know, the image I like is it's like a wave. And mm. if you're on a roller coaster on that wave, people love going up into peak emotions because it's exciting, but they hate going down because it feels a little depressing. Yeah. But if you, but if you slam on the brakes when you're going down, you get stuck in the bottom of the trough. If you just let the emotion happen, you just keep flowing through the ups and downs. But people don't do that. They put on the brakes when they're not feeling good. And that actually gets them stuck in not feeling good. Yeah. So if you just felt not feeling good, then the next peak is coming. Then you but get out of that uh, stuckness. Yes. And and I, I'm really intrigued with all emotions. And I try also to honor my, all emo my own emotions and be okay with also the ones that are uncomfortable. And for me, it helped me to relabel uh, emotions like they're comfortable ones that we all, I think, recognize like joy and love and uh, excitement. But then there are the uncomfortable ones like being scared or um, angry or jealous and things I rather not in my mind, this is again the mind saying something. My mind didn't want to experience them, but now when I understand 
more about the mind and emotions, I allow myself to have those moments, right? And that has helped me to feel more in life. It also helps the peak happy experiences to be stronger. So I think that's the this good side of all of this is that life feels more alive with a mindfulness practice. I think I think you're exactly right. You extend your range like somebody who's a singer extends their range to low notes, high notes. If you dampen the challenging emotions, you inadvertently dampen the joyful ones. And so you want to extend your range. Mm -hmm. um, the German philosopher Heidegger said that anxiety and boredom were the two greatest access points to awakening and growing um, mm. awareness. Yes, um, because, interesting. Because those, yeah, because those are sort of existentially difficult to be bored. Um, and, and, and he also said that anxiety and boredom were just two sides of the same coin, basically. They're just different expressions. One is this numbing, the other is amping up. But those are great access points. So, you know, we're sort of in a place in our culture where when you feel uncomfortable, you take a pill or you try to push it away. Yeah. Um, but those things are your access point to learning and growing. And yes. so, um, of course, they can get into a clinical space where we want treatment. But uh, but if 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 they're low grade, sort of normal, um, normal uh, difficulty, then uh, then I think it's really important to allow them to run their course. Hmm. And mindfulness lets us do that. It lets us sort of be OK with, oh, this is really uncomfortable right now. Hmm. Yes. Being being OK with uncomfortable is has helped me so much uh, on my journey, especially as an entrepreneur. I'm under a lot of emotions sometimes. Um, and that has also led me to explore compassion, which has helped to be more compassionate in the states. I feel, for example, anxiety or worry. Um, what's your approach to compassion? Mm. Well, compassion breaks down into feeling with, or sometimes people even say suffering with, because calm is with and passion is Latin for feeling. Um, so feeling with, uh, I, I just heard someone say the other day that uh, conflict is required for compassion. Mm -hmm. And I, I In their I like conflict. <laughs> yeah, well, some sort of conflict, whether whether if we're having compassion for another, it's the conflict between the two parties. And uh, I think it's really essential. I think that, you know, mindfulness and compassion go really well together. I think mindfulness has elements of sort of this robust feeling and compassionate peace. But mindfulness can also see, be seen as very linear at times, very mind. It has very little to do actually with the brain and the mind. It has more to do with the awareness. Um, so for instance, in Tibetan Buddhism, mind means heart mind. It's it's more of a, a, a full bodied mind. Like any ways of knowing is considered mind, not just thinking and cognitive mind. Um, oh. and, and so uh, I think compassion and that awareness together are really are the healing balm for the human condition and the human experience. Uh, and as a practice, self-compassion, uh, giving yourself space. We're all imperfect human beings, and that's why we're beautiful. That's why we're perfect as we are. Um, but then to hold that space for ourselves. Uh, and there's lots of great work coming out of compassion, of course, as well. Lots of places on, on in the United States, on the East and West Coast, and I'm sure other places. Yeah, 
yeah, there's a lot of good things when you look into it. And um, I heard um, an interview not too long ago from Kirsten Neff, who's been writing, writing a lot about compassion. And she also explained, which resonated very well with me, that the mindfulness practice is becoming more the observer of your thoughts and emotions, basically your state of being. While the compassionate piece is feeling compassion for the observer, mm. which I enjoy, like that felt good. Because sometimes I thought that sitting in the meditation or mindfulness and you are observing your mind, if you then try or if I try to take myself out of that experienced suffering, then that I was trying to change the experience which goes a little bit against the the teachings of mindfulness of being okay with the experience. But then adding that dimension that you can still have compassion with the ones that's observing. Mm. Um, then, then that for me gave me another perspective on the, and a bit more kindness, I think, towards mm, myself in the practice. I think it's so important. I think mindfulness practice, as it's been traditionally taught at times, can be very masculine and very willful and very directive and sort of like just stay no matter how bad it gets sort of thing and just work your way through it. I've always been drawn to more feminine models, more psychotherapeutic models of, you know, for me, there has to be the psycho spiritual element, there has to be a psychological holding, in addition to sort of the effort, you know, a balance between effort and surrender and a more round rather than linear approach. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've been drawn mostly to communities that have a lot of therapists in it, fr frankly, a lot of therapists that are also mindfulness teachers. Uh, you know, there's a center here near me called Spirit Rock Meditation Center. Uh, and so I think Kristen has presented there even. Yeah, yes. And and you said in the beginning, I mean, you are um, shaping or you created this network of practitioners. Um, and how do you support each other? How does the network uh, work? You know, the Mindful Professionals Network is sort of, it's it's a B2C offering of my company that does mostly B2B work. Um, we're finding our way. We're only a year new and we're figuring it out. And so, you know, for a while we were doing things like monthly themes and weekly prompts to help people engage. Um, it's challenging to start something new in, in a community sense. It just takes years until people sort of feel into it. So right now what we're doing is we're doing monthly meetups at very various locations around the world. We have 15 of those. I'm sure they're starting very small because I don't go to all those, of course, personally. Mm -hmm. um, the one here in the Bay Area, you know, has started small. We've had as many as 10 people um, at, at this one, which has been nice. I think the last one had five or six. And uh, so these meetups and then what we're also doing for members is members that want to present on a topic can present and then we market uh, their presentation across our social media outlets, which is about 100,000 reach. Um, but then the, mm -hmm. the presentation is within the network. So we're just trying to get this to be a share community where people that want to engage and it's in, in a sense, it's sort of its own social media, um, but a mindful community of people having these sorts of conversations. Yeah, and that's, I think, so beautiful and great that you are doing because there is a big strength in both seeing and talking about 
mindfulness with other practitioners, but also to practice the art of mindfulness together. It's like something happens in the energy that you create when you just sit in, even in silence together. There is a connection. Mm -hmm. Well, in our exchange here, my big takeaway for myself personally is your reflection on compassion, is your um, suggestion that to be compassionate for the observer. I hadn't heard that before. So who knows if I would have discovered that. And so now I can uh, sit and reflect and in my own experience, see what that feels like. Mm. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation for me as well. I feel like I've taken away so much more aspects of being mindful in a corporate setting. It's not about bringing people into a room and being just having the training of traditional mindfulness, but it's more about talking maybe about the culture and the warmth that you want to create and having an intention about the corporate culture. Um, so that, uh, thank you so much for sharing all of your experience and wisdom with us. And well, it's, it's, it's been a pleasure to be here. I thank you for giving me the platform to do so. Mm. And I'm sure more people listening in will be very curious to learn more uh, from you. So what's the best way for people to find you? Um, they can come to our website, which is www.mindfullifemindfulwork.com. That's mostly for B2B work. And then also the community, the uh, Mindful Professionals Network, which is mindfulprofessionalsnetwork.com, um, professionals with an S. And uh, yeah, people are welcome to reach out. They can find me on LinkedIn. Again, my name is Jonathan Reynolds. And uh, yeah, yeah, don't be a stranger. Mm, thank you. Yes, so I'm uh, so glad again that we had the opportunity to have this conversation. And I will follow you more and I'm sure we'll connect soon again. So thank you, Jonathan, so much. Thank you for listening in and remember to subscribe so you get notified when we release our next episode of this podcast. And you can always reach out to me. You can connect on LinkedIn or send me an email on miriam at omla.se. And I wish you a beautiful rest of your day and your week, hoping you are staying healthy, happy and thriving wherever you are in the world. Bye bye.